0: Hey, that's a, uh, a really appropriate song for this weekend. This is the biggest party weekend of the year. You probably knew that. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, and we love to party in this country, don't we? we? Whether it's spring break, Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, I don't know if you've ever realized this about us, but we steal other countries' holidays just so we can throw a party, too. Like St. Patrick's Day? That has nothing to do with us. All right? In case you didn't know, Cinco de Mayo, not our holiday, all right, not our deal. We just love to party, so use whatever excuse we can get, Friday night, party, all right. The truth is, a lot of us, we live for those moments. A lot of us, we go, you know what, yeah, I work a boring job, live kind of a mundane life, and so yeah, I live for Friday night, I live for the whole weekend. We, we kind of yearn for the pleasure of simply letting go and blowing off steam. And it's not just partying, we're really an experiential culture. We get addicted to the high of experiences, and so we're constantly trying to entertain ourselves so that we can avoid this dreadful thing called boredom, right? So we pursue pleasures, and we do that sometimes at all costs. Now I know what you're thinking, you may be going, oh, here we go, this is what I've come to experience and expect from churches, this is going to be the anti-fun sermon where they tell me everything I'm doing is wrong. And I understand why you might be afraid that's what I'm going to say this morning. Churches have for a long time been anti-fun. But if you'll just hang with me for a while, I think you might be surprised at what I have to say. Past several weeks around here, we've been in this series called Serial Killers, and we've been looking at some things in our lives that we've allowed into our lives that we perhaps haven't paid enough attention to that have turned out to be serial killers in disguise. And most of the things that we've looked at so far, we would typically attribute a negative value to. In other words, at face value, we would look at things like we've discussed, like pride and lust and idolatry and greed, and go, yeah, those are bad things. What's been difficult in this series is that we've realized how a lot of us have allowed those things into our lives unknowingly, and those things have taken control of our lives. Now today, what I want to do, though, is something just a little bit different. I want to look at some things that are actually good things. I want to look at some things that aren't by nature bad or evil. In fact, they're not even neutral. I want to look at some things that are by nature good things. But if we put too much value on these things, if we allow them to have too much significance in our lives, these things will turn bad. Now, here's what I mean, all right? I'll go ahead and do something really unorthodox this morning. I'm going to give you uh, the main point, the only point of this sermon at the beginning of the sermon, all right? Some of you are like, great, then I can go to sleep for the rest of it. So this is your lucky day, all right? Here it is. When good things become ultimate things, ultimately good things become destructive things, all right? In fact, why don't you repeat after me, all right? Here we go. When good things become ultimate things, Wow. Are you guys awake this morning? We're going to repeat this after me. Let's try this one more time. When good things become ultimate things, things things. ultimately good things things. become destructive things. things. Very good. Now we're awake this morning. Here's what I'm talking about. When good goes wild, when, when good's gone wild, that can become one of the scariest things on earth. What do you mean? Well, that's what I want to kind of explore for the rest of this morning. There's a person in the Bible that I think can help us with this, perhaps more than anybody else in the Bible. This is a guy named Solomon. All right, we studied a lot about Solomon around here. If you were here a few years ago and we did the explicit lyrics series, we walked through an entire book of the Bible called Song of Solomon. When we did the, there's a series called We did. A, there's an app for that. Many of those proverbs were all proverbs of solomon solomon's a guy that we've studied before he's the son of a guy who was also very famous a guy named david solomon lived about three thousand years ago he's the king of israel and he was known primarily for three things solomon was known for his wisdom his wealth and his wives so let me break that down for a second solomon uniquely had this opportunity unprecedented opportunity when he became king of israel god told him ask me for whatever you want i'll give it to you Like jackpot. I mean, this is an amazing opportunity. And Solomon, interestingly enough, asked God for wisdom. Of all the things he could ask for, he asked for wisdom, which in and of itself was a wise choice. And he did. He grew in wisdom. People came from all over the world to hear Solomon teach them on many subjects, things like science and architecture and horticulture. He also, though, at the same time, became the wealthiest man the world has ever seen. And it's hard to translate his wealth into modern-day currency, but every scholar agrees that Solomon is the wealthiest person who's ever walked the face of the earth. If you compared him and Bill Gates, it would be no contest. Solomon is varsity, Bill Gates is JV. Bill Gates is chump change compared to what Solomon had. Solomon also, though, had a bazillion wives, which calls into question his wisdom, doesn't it? All right, we're going to look at that here in a little bit as well you got your Bibles, we're going to turn to this little book in the middle of the Bible called Ecclesiastes, all right? If you don't have your Bibles, pull out your programs. It'll also be on the screens. This is basically a journal from Solomon. And in this journal, Solomon does something profound for us, something I think is very, very helpful. Solomon, at the end of his life, documents for us all of his attempts throughout his life to find ultimate satisfaction, to find joy, to find pleasure to find happiness to find the the meaning of life so to speak and here's why that's so helpful for us solomon had nothing to hold him back in this pursuit in this little this little endeavor solomon had more resources and more power available to him than anybody else has ever walked the face of the earth so while if you and i had this little endeavor going on in our life we're trying to find the meaning of life and we move from one experience to the next eventually our wealth and our power would be limiting factors in that experiment. That's not the case for Solomon, which means that whatever answers Solomon discovers in this endeavor, we would be wise to pay a lot of attention to because Solomon was able to take this experiment to its limits well beyond where you and I ever could, and now he's going to report back to us what he's discovered. Now the flip side of this, the the danger, the thing I'm afraid we might do today is that we'll be tempted to compare ourselves to Solomon in a way by saying, well, look, Solomon's like way out of my league. I'm nothing like that. But the truth of the matter is, and the question has to become, if I had all the wealth and all the power and all the resources at my disposal that Solomon had, would I do anything differently than him? And what am I doing with the wealth and the resources that I have? So we're going to pick it up in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. Look at this. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So here's the test. I'm going to find out what will satisfy my soul, and I'm going to pursue pleasure, number one, to see if that'll do the trick. Look at this. But that also proved to be meaningless, Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? So, what Solomon's doing here is something that's kind of unique in Hebrew literature. He's telling us the end of the story before he tells us the story. But he's doing this all throughout chapter one of Ecclesiastes, if you want to scan through that when you go home today. And then he does that again at the beginning of chapter two. He's going, listen. The thing I want you to understand is many of the things that we pour our lives into, many of the things that we chase after at the end of the day are empty. And he says this over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's, he refers to them as chasing after the wind. And the first thing he chases after is this thing called pleasure. And the word pleasure in the Hebrew literally means celebrations or parties. In other words, what Solomon's going to do, and this is really amazing, some of us wish we could do this, he's going to take a season of his life intentionally as a test and he's going to set aside this season of his life to throw massive, unprecedented parties. He's going to party like a rock star. He's going to throw parties like the world has never seen before. And this is how he describes them. Look at verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind still guiding me with wisdom. In other words, he does this with the whole test still in mind. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Now, here's the thing. Because we suffer oftentimes from what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological arrogance, which is to think that we do everything better because we're the most recent people to inhabit the planet than any generation that preceded us, we might do that with this thing called partying. In other words, in your mind right now, some of you are going, listen, Scott, I'm sure that, you know, for 3,000 years ago, Solomon may have known how to throw a party. But if I could take Solomon with me today to Vegas, then he would know how to party. If I could take Solomon with me to my frat house, I would show him a real party. If I could take Solomon with me this summer to my backyard barbecue, then he would know what a party would really look like. Because let's be honest, Scott, we're talking about a Bible guy. He can't possibly know how to party that well or else he wouldn't be a Bible guy. Partiers aren't allowed to like be in the Bible. All right, well, hold on to that thought and listen to this. I'm going to flip back a few pages in my Bible to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22. Now, I don't know what kind of resources it takes to throw one of your parties. This is what it took to throw just one, one day of Solomon's parties. Listen to this. This is just the food. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores, that's 185 bushels, by the way, of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. 10 head of stall-fed cattle. They've been fattened up just for a party. 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, 100 goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Now, I'm sure that your backyard barbecue with your PBR in the keg and a rack of ribs on the grill... I don't have PBR in the keg. I have Miller High Life. Great. Whatever. All right? I'm, I bet it's just awesome. I bet it's amazing. But if you took Solomon to your backyard barbecue and called it a party, he would not know what you were talking about. If you brought Solomon to your frat house and all the guys run around in togas, Solomon will laugh at you and call you lame. All right? Because you think you know how to party. But what I'm trying to explain to you, what I'm trying to get through your brain right now is This. Most historians agree that somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people attended each one of Solomon's parties. So take the Pepsi Center, fill it to capacity, put seats on the floor, and you still don't have room for all the people who are coming to just one of Solomon's parties. And they did it day after day after day. And I imagine it was amazing. The food, the wine, the, the music, the entertainment, nothing limited him. If he wanted to bring in a DJ, he hired Dr. Dre. If he wanted a band, he flew in U2. If he wanted a comedian, he got Chris Rock. And everyone, when they woke up on the palace lawn the next afternoon, do you know what they did? They fired up the grill again and did it again. And we don't know how long this went on, but it went on day after day after day. And I imagine as the party escalated, each day getting bigger and bigger and bigger, I bet it was an unbelievable experience until finally the party couldn't get any bigger anymore. And at some point, you know what happened? Really wasn't that fun anymore. The best comparison I could give you is the the difference between the flight to Vegas and the flight back from Vegas. (laughs) Vegas. You ever, you ever been on that? You know what I'm talking about? Man, that flight to Vegas, everybody's excited. That flight from Vegas, nothing. <laughs> nothing at all, right? And I imagine it was the same way for Solomon and the people who partied with him. They got tired of waking up in their own vomit, tired of waking up with a different stranger for the fifth night in a row, tired of waking up feeling like they get hit by a truck or a camel or whatever. What once felt ultimate. In other words, everybody's walking around going, Oh, we've arrived. This is the way we should live the rest of our lives. Thank God Solomon's king. This is awesome. Let's just do this from now on. It was ultimate. turned out to be the ultimate way to die. See, celebration, which is a good thing, by the way, became an ultimate thing. And ultimately, when good things become ultimate, guess what? They'll destroy you. So what does Solomon do? He does what we all do. He moves on to something else. And he takes that to a whole other level. Look at this in verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He goes to work. He's out of college now he's going to get serious. he's going to stop partying, he's going to get serious. he's going to start achieving things, he's going to start accomplishing things. He's going to build stuff, he's going to undertake amazing projects. And he did, man I'm telling you, Solomon, he built a temple, it took seven years to build as one of the wonders of the ancient world. He built his own palace, it took 14 years to build. it was amazing. We later find out he built a house for every one of his wives, which turns out to be a lot of houses. Listen, I know what's going on. Some of you are in here, you're builders, you're architects. You you build things and you're going, Scott, that's great. I I bet that was really nice for the ancient world. But he lived like 3,000 years ago. That makes him like a caveman or something, right? No. Listen to what I'm telling you, all right? You may be a great builder. You may be a great architect. But your shopping mall, your high-rise building, your resort, your, your houses, your condominium complex, whatever it is that you've built is nothing Compared to the stuff that Solomon built, the Bible goes into unbelievable, elaborate detail about just the temple, and we don't have time to explain it all, but suffice it to to say, it was was amazing. You may be in here today going, you know what? Solomon planted some trees. I I planted some trees. I'm I'm a really good gardener. I can grow some cool stuff too. You really might be. What I'm trying to get you to understand is this Solomon planted a forest. And because he needed some water to water the forest, he made reservoirs to water the forest. You can go to Jerusalem to this day and you'll see these big craters known as the pools of Solomon that were used to irrigate the forests that he created. He basically made an ecosystem. It's amazing. Solomon went all out with his work. I mean, dude was big time. Again, people came from all over the world, not just to listen to what he had to say, but to see what he had done. And as he created, as he built things, as he moved from one project to the next, I'm sure it was fulfilling for a while. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can only build so many things before they all start looking the same, right? And what once brought great satisfaction and great joy didn't anymore, left him feeling empty and unsatisfied. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything wrong with work? No, absolutely not. There's nothing bad or evil about work. In fact, it's not even neutral. Work actually is a good thing. This will disappoint some of you, but work was always a part of God's intention for us. It existed before sin entered the world. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately good things become destructive things. So what does Solomon do? does what we all do. He moved on from being an immature partying college guy to a mature workaholic. And now he's going to fulfill the American dream. He's going to retire. He's going to kick back. He's going to relax. He's going to enjoy everything that all of his hard work has afforded him. And he's going to just simply enjoy life. Look at verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and also had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem. And we'll talk about that. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. and all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor kicks back he retires he relaxes and his life could be defined by this at this point uninhibited sexual experimentation uninhibited solomon the bible tells us elsewhere had 700 wives 300 concubines which is a nice way of saying sex slaves Again, you might think your escapades in college or your travels or whatever you've been doing is really something. I'm trying to explain to you, this guy had more power and more women available to him at any moment of any day than any person has ever had. Nothing stopped him from doing whatever he wanted with whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Nothing. Let me ask you a question. How did he get there? Because earlier in the Bible, even in the book of Proverbs, you, you hear Solomon reflecting about the, the wife of his youth. And even commanding young men not to do what he spent the rest of his life doing. And in the Song of Solomon, you hear him referring to his first wife as his beloved. How did he get to this place? Well, in his own words, is he not chasing after the wind? Thinking that if he can just have her, then he'll be satisfied. No, well, maybe her, now maybe her, now maybe her, and he's never satisfied. How did a good thing like sex, and we've talked about that a million times around here, go so wrong and become such a destructive thing? By the way, the Bible tells us it was Solomon's wives that turned his heart away from God and he started embracing other religions. Because he made it an ultimate thing. And when good things become ultimate things, ultimately good things become destructive things. Now, look how Solomon sums up this experience in verse 11. He's an old man now. Now, listen to this. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, was taking into account everything he's ever done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? Say it this way it ran dry, all of it, empty. Chasing after the wind. Meaningless. Unable to provide what he wanted them so desperately to provide. He lived. Solomon lived the American dream more fully than any of us could ever hope to live. He partied, he worked, and he retired. And all of it failed him. And picture him now as an old man at the end of his life, sitting in his throne, screaming out. It's meaningless. Everything he would ever pursued. Everything he would ever done. He says at the end of his life, you know what? Empty. So, maybe we should let Solomon's life be an example for us. A warning shot across the bow, if you will. And maybe we should start to kind of understand some things about ourselves. Things like this. From day one, we are always seeking our own pleasure. Whatever will make us happy. What do you mean, from day one? Scott, don't we learn that? No. You ever been around an infant? You ever been around a newborn? One of the most selfish creatures on the planet. They just are. They could care less about you, what your, what your sleep schedule is supposed to be. They'll wake you up and scream at all hours of the night. And if you think it changes, it doesn't. Just the other day, I had my two-year-old Silas sitting in the high chair over here. I'm trying to make lunch for all three kids. I've got a million things going on. And he does this. He goes, "Dad, that cup, which means that he wants his cup of milk out of the fridge. And because I didn't respond to his command in 0.5 seconds, he repeated that command at a higher volume and at a faster pace. You know what I'm talking about. Dada cup. And then he speeds it up. Dada cup, dada cup, dada cup. And then, I, then I threw him out on the back porch and it all got better. But <laughs> you guys think I'm joking. Um, but if you think that we're any different, we're not. It doesn't change. We just become less obvious and more clever at how we get what we demand and what we want. But make no mistake, we are always chasing after what we think will satisfy us. And Solomon was varsity level of this and we're probably JV. You and I were born dissatisfied. We're always trying to fix that. If you got your bibles out, you probably look over on the same page in Ecclesiastes 3:11 the way Solomon describes it is this, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. What's that mean? It means that God has hardwired us. He's put a yearning, a longing for something eternal in our hearts, something that will last, something that won't run out, something that won't run dry, something that won't spoil. And he's put that desire in our hearts. And because we have that emptiness in us, we're always searching to fill it. And the problem is because you and I are people, we often fall into this temptation to try to fill the eternal with the temporary, And sometimes it's temporary bad things like greed or lust, things like that. But I think more often than not, it's temporary good things like partying, achievement, pleasure, sex, food, drink, whatever that is. And when it runs out, we get angry, we get depressed, and then we move on to the next thing. And Solomon calls that vicious cycle chasing after the wind. We're chasing after the wind. You never get hold of it. The second you think you have it, it slips through your fingers, And certainly it's easy to throw stones at Solomon, but it's also really hard to look in the mirror, isn't it? But the truth is, what Solomon has done for us is invaluable because he's blazed the trail for us and he's reporting back to us from the end of that trail, it's a dead end. And that's helpful because a lot of us are on the same trail. We're trying to find fulfillment and value in, fill in the blank, pleasure, achievement, retirement, whatever that is. And some of you are way ahead of me because you grew up in church and you know how a good sermon like this is supposed to end. You have to end this sermon with this application. Leave all those worldly pursuits behind you. Right? Wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. You know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that Solomon didn't go big enough. The Bible teaches that Solomon settled for too little pleasure the bible teaches that solomon's attempts at finding satisfaction and joy were half-hearted and lame attempts at joy what what yeah i'm serious say it this way because you're not with me yet all right name for me one pleasure that didn't come from god Sure, we can twist and we can pervert any pleasure that God's given us, but name one pleasure in its purest form that God didn't give us. Food? Sex? Wine? Music? Come on, what you got? No, He created every pleasure that we experience. They are His gifts to us. The problem is those things were meant to be markers, shadows, arrows, if you will, pointing to something more, something greater, something more satisfying, something eternal. Those things are all temporary signs of the eternal. But the problem is we put too much weight on those things, on those gifts, and we demand from those things, things that they cannot deliver. We expect too much out of those gifts. What I mean is this, sex was never meant to bring you ultimate fulfillment. It can't. Food was never meant to bring you maximum joy. It can't. Here's one that will be really sensitive for a lot of us. Your kids, your children, were never intended, nor are they capable of bringing you ultimate satisfaction. And it would be unfair for me as a parent to expect that out of my kids. That's too much pressure to put on a person. Let, let, let me say it this way, okay? So my son Eli turned five years old on, on Friday, and I love this little guy. I can't describe for you how much I love him. I love him ferociously. I don't know how else to say it for you, all right? I also, at times, could pop his head off of his body, <laughs> all right? No one on the planet can make, make me more angry than Eli. He, he's just a difficult kid. He's lots of fun. He's also incredibly challenging. That's just reality. And the truth of the matter is, if I'm really, really honest with you, when I'm struggling with Eli, most of the time it's because he's making my life harder, or his behavior in public is embarrassing me, or he's doing something that's adding stress to my life. And in case you didn't notice the pronouns in that run-on sentence, let me say them again. Me, my, and I. Sounds a lot like the guy who built bigger barns last week, doesn't it? See, if I allow Eli's behavior to dictate my mood and my day, if I try to make Eli ultimate in my life, that's not fair to him. And it certainly doesn't help me. Let me say it this way, all right? If I'm depending on my five-year-old for my self-worth, doesn't that indicate there's something wrong with my heart, not his? Now, apply that to any relationship in your life. Your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife. Who is it? that you're demanding out of them something they can't deliver for you. Something they can't give you. See, when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, you know the rest by now. So what do we do? I think we have to put good things in their proper context and and see them for what they are as markers and shadows of the eternal to let them be what they were meant to be. What do you mean? Well, here's one example, all right? There's something about a good party that should remind us of who God is. The first time I ever really realized this, probably about 10 years ago, I've been married about a year, been in full-time ministry about a year. Uh, My wife and I went on vacation with my dad and my stepmom. We went to... uh, Boston, and then Cape Cod, and we're at Cape Cod, and we're, we walk down the street to this bar one night at sunset, and we're at, in this bar, and there's singing, and there's dancing, and there's drinking, and there's laughing, and there's family, and there's fun, and there's all of this, and I was acutely aware of the fact that the only reason I wasn't going to lose my job for this was because I was about 1,200 miles away. But had I been back in my hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, and one of the leaders from my church had walked by and seen me in that bar, I would have been fired the next day. And what I couldn't reconcile in my heart and in my mind was the fact that I felt more in sync with what I knew to be true about God's character and who He is in that bar than I had ever felt in any church service up until that point in my life. And why is that? Some of you are going... Is the takeaway today I should skip church and go to the bar more often? (laughs) I love this place. It's probably not the takeaway. The takeaway is way bigger than that. It's not limited to that. I think the takeaway is that God's presence, if there is a God out there, his presence probably isn't limited to an old feed store or an old Walmart and Albertsons across the street. No, I, I think that the takeaway may mean that yeah, based on where Jesus hung out and who he hung out with, going to a bar may be a very Jesus-like thing to do. I think it means, though, even more than that, I think it means I've got to recognize good gifts, but not fall in love with those gifts, but instead fall in love with the one who gave me those gifts. Don't fall in love with the gift. Fall in love with the giver. C.S. Lewis famously said it this way in a sermon called The Weight of Glory, and I've read this to you before, but it really applies today. Look at this. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum. That's Solomon, by the way, because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, what we do is we try to fill the eternal desires of our hearts with temporary pleasures. And we wonder why we end up so unsatisfied. But don't take C.S. Lewis's word for it. He's just a man. Listen to what God has to say. He says this in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And here's the metaphor. Why spend money on what is not bread? Why waste your life on something that will not fill you up? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. In other words, the this question screaming off the page there is simply this Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? You've been searching for something more? Of course you are. God would say, I created you hungry. I created you thirsty. I created you to search and find me. C.S. Lewis would say it this way If I find in myself a hunger that nothing in this world seems to be able to satisfy, I must conclude that I was created for another world. That's true. So God says, direct your thirst and your hunger to me. Quit settling for temporary things. Enjoy them for what they are, but pursue me, the only eternal thing. Quit chasing the wind. He says in Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You and I, we've tried to fill the brokenness in our lives with temporary satisfaction, and that will never work. Isn't that so many of our stories? We chased after the wind. We thought that a diploma on the wall would bring fulfillment and it didn't. That a job would ultimately satisfy and it didn't deliver. And thought a guy would bring joy or a child would fix ourselves, Or that some marriage would solve everything. Thought that an experience would fulfill us. And at the end of the day, where did we end up? Empty, thirsty, unsatisfied, and unhappy, just like Solomon. Reminds me a lot of a woman that we've talked about a lot around here. Her story is found in John chapter 4. The Bible tells us she was a Samaritan woman and Jesus encountered her one day by a, a well. And day after day, she journeyed to this well. And that was really a metaphor for her life because day after day, she had returned to this thing called men, thinking that men could give her ultimate satisfaction and joy. One marriage after the other. She'd had five marriages and the man she's living with now is not her husband, Solomon would say she's been chasing after the wind. And Jesus says to her on this day this. Look at this in John 4. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she misunderstands him like we all do all the time. Sir, you have nothing to draw with in the well here. Well, it's deep. Where can you get this living water? you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus goes, no, 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 Listen. Everyone who drinks this water, everyone who drinks this stuff in this well, yeah, you're going to be thirsty again. You're going to keep coming back to this well day after day. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Translation, something that will last. See, when good things become ultimate things, ultimately good things become very destructive things. What wells have you been digging? What broken cisterns do you keep returning to? And isn't it time, like the woman at the well, to change your strategy? Isn't it time to let good things be what they were always meant to be, which is to be enjoyed as good gifts? but to let Jesus be what he was always intended to be, which is to take the place of ultimate in our hearts. And ultimately, when Jesus has that place in our hearts, you know what he delivers? What we've always been looking for. Life. Eternal life. Let's pray. Father, come to you. And um, so many of us are so frustrated. feel like we've been banging our head against the same wall for most of our life. We've feel like we've been chasing after the wind. That's a great metaphor for our life. I feel like everything really has turned out to be meaningless and everything we thought was so important turns out not to be. God, would you give us a moment of pause this morning to allow good things to be what they were meant to be and to enjoy those gifts, but not to fall in love with them, but instead to fall in love with you, the giver of all good things. And ultimately, Father, would you draw our hearts to your Son, the only one who can give us life. Let him be the center of our hearts this morning, the center of our lives. It's in Jesus' name, amen.